Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. My name is Elizabeth Wilson, a member of the Board of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, a very worthy and effective organization for U.S.-Arab relations. Before I introduce these distinguished speakers, let me briefly state the panel's theme. And that is that the GCC states, both collectively and individually, have been involved in a multitude of dynamics, as it is in the title, in the MENA region, in addition to developments in their own countries. Um, Ambassador Chas Freeman stated this morning that when he was appointed to, ambas uh, to be ambassador uh, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, apparently, uh, President Bush noted that, uh, by the way, nothing much happens there, meaning nothing much happens in Saudi Arabia. Well, today we almost yearn for those quieter years in the region, uh, especially the GCC countries in this regard. Uh, now back to the speakers. Uh, we have at the podium four experts, and really experts with a wealth of knowledge on the GCC and beyond in the MENA region and uh, GCC-US uh, relations and MENA-US relations. We look forward to having them uh, and to having them speak and then uh, ask them to unpack these uh, complicated roles of the GCC in regional dynamics and also individual uh, developments in the countries uh, of the GCC. Uh, each speaker will have about uh, 10 minutes, or at the most 12 or less, we can, so we can have ample of time for uh, questions and answers. Um, while I ask you to refer to the booklets uh, and the National Council's website and uh, Google and Twitter to read the bios of these speakers, I simply want to mention one-liners on each. Dr. Anthony needs absolutely no introduction. He's obviously the president and CEO of the National Council of U.S.-Arab Relations. He is the driving force not only behind this conference, uh, but b behind the U.S.-Arab relations in sort of totality in this town. Uh, the second, the, he'll be the first speaker. The second speaker will be Mr. al -Manai. Mr. Khaled Al-Maina, sorry, uh, to, uh, Mr. Al-Maina is the former editor-in-chief of the uh, Saudi paper uh, uh, Arab News as well as the Saudi Gazette. He runs an organization together with his wife, Mrs. Uh, Samar Fatani, an organization called Naam. It's based in Paris. Uh, it is, uh, its mission is interfaith dialogue, labor issues, human rights issues, as well as uh, strong uh, women's issues. Uh, by the way, Mr. and Mrs. Al-Manai uh, have hosted a number of uh, U.S. delegates to Saudi Arabia uh, that uh, the National Council has sent, and now we get to thank him officially for having seen at least 220 people. Right, Dr. From this group, and so thank you. For the third speaker, it's Ambassador Richard Schmierer. He is a distinguished international uh, affairs fellow and member of the advisory committee of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. He's a former ambassador to Oman, 
and as well as former assist, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Diplomacy at the State Department. He will have a unique uh, uh, sort of perspective on uh, U.S. Ambassador's uh, view uh, of Oman. We look forward to hearing that. The last but not least, we will be hearing from uh, Dr. Abdullah Al-Shaeji from Kuwait, Professor of International Relations and Chair of the American Studies Unit, Kuwait University. Um, uh, Dr. Al-Shaeji is a keen observer, uh, as I know him, of uh, the US, poli U.S. politics, and we look forward to hearing an overall perspective of U.S.-GCC relations. And without further ado, Dr. Anthony. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. I'm not sure that uh, people are aware that uh, in terms of uh, board of directors, other than the chairman and the president, uh, we're equal on the gender front. We have an equal number of women, equal number of men. I'm not sure that that's the case with any of the other sister organizations in the field, but this is uh, yet another uh, example of what we're trying to do to make a difference, uh, even if it's only at the margins uh, seen by others. In terms of my opening remarks here, I want to try to focus on what the GCC is and what it is not. And uh, in terms of its formation and its evolution uh, within uh, 10 minutes, no uh, longer than 12. It is often compared with the European Union, and rightly so, uh, for the following reasons, uh, but uh, fairly and unfairly, and insightfully and misleadingly. Uh, so the fair part of it is the following, that each was established by six countries, six in the EU, six in the GCC, uh, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman, geographically from north to south. Um, from the tip of the, or the end of the Gulf to the entrance to the Gulf. Secondly, the GCC has stated uh, on numerous occasions that the EU is an example that they would like to emulate. They have watched its successes, they have learned lessons in terms of how far and how fast they can go and the necessity for compromise and to overcome uh, internal divisions and tensions. It is often faulted uh, for being not unified, but what sub-regional or international organization really is unified? Indeed, what country that may even call itself unified is really unified on certain issues, um, right to life, immigration, things of that nature, all right? Um, secondly, uh, with regard to the EU, uh, this is the only Western organization with which the GCC has a formal agreement. And this has to do with uh, the period since 1987, uh, when both sides uh, searched, it's been ever elusive from the beginning, uh, to have a free trade agreement between the two. 
which came to a screeching halt in the last several years uh, by the GCC in objection to the EU's continuing to move the goalposts of what would be required of the GCC countries and perceived, if not actual, beyond rhetorical intrusion in the domestic affairs of the GCC countries. Uh, but because of that agreement, there is an office in Brussels uh, where every day there is a GCC representative who works with and has a staff, uh, their fellow counterparts in the European Union. There is no organization in the United States. There is no office in the nation's capital where someone in a session like this could hand you a business card and say she or he is part of a GCC liaison office in the uh, nation's capital or the world's strongest, most powerful country there. Uh, so it is uh, similar but misleading in that regard. And more tellingly, it's uh, misleading in the following ways. And I, I want people to focus on on the implications of this because it's not widely known except amongst the specialists. And by the way, there are no experts. I'm not one. I've never met one in this region. We're all in a university from which there's no possible graduation. Uh, only on the best of days do we get an incomplete and uh, lots of us have overdue library funds that we'd spend a lifetime uh, uh, repaying. Uh, but in this particular regard, what did the European Union have going for it? It had going for it the following. It had a pre-existing organization upon which it built in terms of mutuality of benefit and reciprocity of rewards. And this was the European Coal and Steel Community, uh, which showed the measurable, tangible results of interstate cooperation uh, having to do with material uh, well-being of its citizens. There was no such comparable organization between and amongst the GCC countries at that founding. On the contrary, uh, not only did they trade to a minimum extent between and amongst themselves, for all six they traded more extensively with countries beyond the GCC uh, region, and that remains the case uh, to uh, this day. Uh, secondly, is a psychological factor. The founders of the European Union were peoples, were countries, were leaders whose psychological well-being had been shattered, in some cases just literally to smithereens by World War II. And so these aspects uh, seared themselves into the consciousness of the European Union's founders, Schumann and Monet and others, that uh, if we don't get our act together and cooperate and find common ground and consensus and consult continuously and find the benefits between ourselves and overcome historical animosities, there will be a third world war. We've had two within 40 years, and so nothing remotely comparable in the GCC region there. Uh, they had not uh, been invaded, attacked, bombed, uh, and occupied uh, there by uh, Western uh, non-Muslim uh, forces at that. So that was absent, and yet they still formed. Uh, thirdly, uh, they had their back covered in terms of the NATO and the United States as a formidable, formal leading power within NATO and the world's then superpower as such. 
There is to this day no formal comparable signed defense agreement, as was alluded to in the previous session, between the United States and any of the GCC countries, let alone all six of them. So that was absent, and yet still they formed themselves, even though death was on their doorstep with the Iran-Iraq war, two countries that were far more populous, Iraq's population being as great as all of the six GCC uh, countries uh, combined, and Iran's population uh, being double that of all of the seven of the eight Arab countries in the Gulf uh, combined. And fourthly and lastly uh, was the Marshall Plan, which was linked in its own way to uh, the NATO uh, alignment, the NATO from 1949, but the Marshall Plan from June 1947, where the economic reconstruction of Europe was aided by the injection of capital and technology cooperation and trade and investment between the United States and the European Union's uh, founders. Uh, there was no such external Western superpower foreign economic assistance training and development program aiding the six uh, GCC countries. And yet in spite of that, they formed themselves. So these four uh, things that aided the European Union, all four were absent in the case of the GCC countries. They're often maligned, they're often ridiculed, they're often laughed at. Uh, people on the defense scale say they couldn't fight their way out of a wet paper bag. Uh, they have not um, uh, done uh, what they should do, what they could do, what they might do, what they must do, and therefore uh, let's get serious because they're not serious. Uh, these are cheap shots. These are below the belt shots in a metaphorical male frame of, of reference uh, there. Uh, the reference to the previous panel speaker about the glass uh, being half full rather than half empty is where I am. Unbeknownst to the Western world, largely, because it's not reported in the medium, when it's not reported in the media, it's, it's a, as though it didn't happen. So if a tree fell in the forest and there was no one there, uh, uh, did it make a sound? Uh, we're not sure about that. But there have been more than 700 meetings of the GCC's leaders and their staff and their technicians and their advisors and functional kinds of committees to try to, so to speak, get their act together, to harmonize their educational curricula, to seriously consider the benefits and the demerits of a common currency, to link their electricity uh, grids, there, to have an arbitration court uh, to build a causeway between the Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and considering a causeway between Bahrain and Qatar uh, and these kinds of uh, cooperative arrangements that escape the notice of Westerners in general uh, but are the slow but sure building box blocks of an edifice uh, that has legs so far and it's fully in keeping with the Charter of the United Nations. Uh, Articles 47 through 53 are the backbone of the UN Charter and uh, there have been from the beginning the United Nations Secretariat's encouragement of other efforts of countries to get their act together and to cooperate and to be partners uh, for a greater cause. So these are some of the distinction, distinguishing factors of the GCC's existence, something about what it is and what it is not.
Thank you. Please. Good afternoon. Whenever people speak of the GCC, they think of it as a monolith. Uh, I tend to disagree because the GCC states, while they are together and share common values, uh, religion, language, have common denominators, but there are varying uh, differences between them. For example, in social mores, in the way they look at things and treatment of women, uh, but yet there is that aspiration to forge a link together so that we can be, not just play a powerful role, but for the betterment of the people. However, there are four major challenges that one has to look. One is the demographic challenge, uh, which is the spiraling of the population. The other is the economic challenge. The political challenge is the third, and the security challenge. Now, a lot of people have spoken already on the security challenge on uh, the dangers from uh, abroad, but I would like to focus on two issues that to me are very important. One is the demographic challenge, especially the young people. I sit with a lot of them and I've been researching for the past year, moving crisscrossing Saudi Arabia and other parts, and, and the message that I get from them is that young people are asking we would like to be stakeholders in a country that we think also belongs to us. They would like to be passengers on the road of life, not mere bystanders. There is hampering in that effort. A, the education system, which grew up and had quantity, did not have the quality. But again, then, the recent changes that have come where the government has instituted reforms to allow foreign universities to set up in Saudi Arabia and to allow private individuals and institutions and organizations to make universities is churning out a new breed of Saudis who are capable and whose quality of education gives them a chance to go into the workforce. Most young Saudis previously would love to go and work in the public sector. It's a safe job, it's a nine to four job, and there are no challenges. But right now I can see a change in this trend where people would like to work in international companies where you are gauged on what you do and if you don't do well, you're asked and shown the door. These are issues that young people are caring about. What other things I think that young people aspire for is to be like other young people abroad, to, to have a voice heard, uh, to be able to express themselves, to form institutions, to form um, organizations, all within the parameter of what the country and ideology stands for. Now this differs from country to country in the GCC. Unemployment. Now, the three countries that have an unemployment rate are Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Oman. Saudi Arabia has an 11.2% unemployment as per the Jadwa report of last month. And one of the reasons, I think, is because the young people are not able to come in into the new companies that are coming in to build the airport, the desalination plants, the railroads, because they do not possess the technical skills uh, to go and work. As such, it's a paradox of geography and history that while we would love to have our people in, at the same time we get people from abroad so that they will come in and participate in our economy and its progress. 
this also causes another problem, the dichotomy between the workers who have come from abroad and also the people here. And in recent uh, months, the media has attacked company owners, business people, industrials, for not focusing on young people. But again, you see, this attack, I think, is unfair because you do not have the right quality and the right technical aspects that needs to be pushed into this workforce. These are some of the issues. Another issue that is of concern to me is that while we are rich in one of the greatest resources, which is oil, which fuels our engine of progress and goes us to go ahead, we are also scarce in many other resources. One is water. And, and to me, that's a nightmare. Uh, while we are building desalination plants, but these are also very vulnerable to any terror attack. They're vulnerable to any cyber attack. They're vulnerable to any uh, maintenance problem. So we have to really focus on these issues. But with a rising increase in population, there also was a call by certain writers saying that we should have a planned uh, a family planning. This, of course, caused the man in the pulpit to be very angry because they thought of it as being anti-religious to have a family planning. So you see the government then has to maneuver itself in such a way as to please all parties. And I have also seen in the past few years, and one can say without hesitation that the last 10 years has seen quite a few changes in Saudi Arabia. And I think King Abdullah's reforms, uh, his inclusion of women in the shura, his, his focus on young people, I think has set the ball rolling and there's no turning back. You know, usually people ask, okay, what happens when a new king comes or goes? You cannot change the basic formation of the country. It has to go on. There is no way that we can regress. As was said this morning, uh, we are uh, fortunate to have two of the holiest places in Islam, so we have to have exemplary character. We are fortunate to have people come in, so we have to provide better services. All this needs a lot of effort. And this is where I think the focus is on a better education. We have to strive hard. And, and at the same time, focus within. The strength of Saudi Arabia will come not with the F-16s and the Abraham tanks, but will come from within the youth, the people uh, the, the, who would like to play a role, provided they are being given a chance to enhance social mobility and be pronounced as stakeholders in that country which is being happening. There are many changes coming up. There are now elections in December, and, and people are getting to go ahead. People often say, why do people are slow? Well, I think I will not say that uh, the usual that we are special people, no, because that's the answer. I said slow because you the equilibrium. It's not easy to manage this country. I mean, it is a country that is patriarchal. Information flows up to down. It's tribal, the same thing. So how do you marry all these composites and come out and take it into something that will be in, in, in the future be somewhat in a way which is good? But having said that, I think the government should realize, and it has realized, not only in Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Gulf states, as to the involvement of young people, whether it's in Kuwait or Bahrain or Oman, the UAE, you find younger elements now taking part in the decision-making process. You find people, you find more, say, previously there were no societies that one could debate. Now you have the majlis and you have other institutions where people are saying that. But I think what also is needed is, is 
more focus on young people, more focus on what is happening, uh, the focus also on our food security. When there was a plague in India, uh, a lot of the uh, vegetables and other food products could not come to Oman and the UAE. And for 16 days, there was a big rush on uh, the supermarkets and all. So we would like to see food security. We would like our young people to play a role in, in their education. And, and we would like to see something that there will be equal opportunity for everyone. Uh, I think this is very important. We are plagued by, uh, by external things because by an accident of history you are living in a bad neighborhood uh, and we have to live with that. But I think with reason and logic and statesmanship we'll be able to cross through. Thank you. Ambassador Richard Schmierer. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth and, and John. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. It's a pleasure to be back. I've spoken uh, at this event in years past, uh, but I think this is my first time since I'm no longer an official American, so I can probably be a little bit more frank than maybe I, uh, I was in the past. Um, as Elizabeth mentioned, uh, my most recent experience was as U.S. Ambassador in Oman, uh, and I think my own experience there in Oman's sort of situation and history uh, being unique um, provides a, an interesting window uh, on where we have seen kind of U.S., the U.S. approach to the Gulf, to the GCC in particular, but the Gulf more broadly, uh, under the Obama administration. So what I'd like to do is use that, that window and, and sort of look back to the beginning of the Obama administration and kind of see where we are. And, and this is sort of triggered, of course, by the recent conclusion of the Iran nuclear deal. So you know, we've traveled a certain path, we're at a certain point, and, and maybe for a few minutes we can kind of take an assessment. Uh, first, I think it's very important to remember um, that uh, President Obama, in the very first days of his administration, uh, reached out to Iran. In other words, he made it clear uh, that he was willing to kind of reassess and, and recalibrate our approach to Iran. Obviously, we all remember that under the previous administration, there was fairly harsh rhetoric vis-a-vis -vis Iran. And, and it seems clear, you, you may recall, I made a few notes uh, in his he, he had a Nauru's message to Iran in the first months of his administration where he was kind of offering, uh, the way he put it is, to have engagement that is honest and grounded in mutual respect. Uh, he said that, I think it was in March of 2009. Um, and then he followed up with a, a letter uh, to Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, I don't think either of those initial outreach efforts really uh, gained a whole lot of positive response, but I do think it sort of set a tone that at least potentially caused the Iranian leadership to think, well, you know, maybe uh, there's a possibility for some improvement here. Um, and then let me then fast forward to my own personal engagement. I arrived in Muscat uh, in September of 2009, um, and you may recall that just shortly before that I had the great good fortune of being the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Iraq at the time when three Americans were captured or taken uh, when they were visiting Iraq, apparently it, it seems the claim is they wandered into Iran. These hikers were then uh, held in Tehran. 
So then three months, two months later, I arrived in Oman as the ambassador, and our government was looking for ways to try to get these poor American hikers out of Iran. So they were asking, are there any countries that might, may be able to help? Uh, so, of course, as the ambassador, I approached the Omanis and, and asked if they might. And what was interesting, I had learned a lot about Oman, obviously, before I got there. But there's some very unique and interesting elements about Oman that, I, that it really successfully helped us uh, with that engagement. I'll just tick off a few of them. One, uh, I remember visiting the southern part uh, of Oman at one point. And in many locations, you see um, sort of memorials to the Iranian soldiers who fell uh, in the 70s who were sent by the Shah to help the Omanis put down the rebellion, the Dofar rebellion. And so there's still a memory of that connection uh, with, uh, with Iran. Uh, the second one, of course, is the Strait of Hormuz. I think it was mentioned this morning. It's, it's strategic importance. Um, what's interesting to note uh, is, of course, Oman and Iran share that, but all the navigable waterways uh, are in Omani waters. So obviously Oman has a very strong interest in maintaining uh, and a responsibility in maintaining uh, the open, this, the strait being open, and for that, obviously, a certain amount of cooperation with and engagement uh, with Iran uh, is important. Uh, third, uh, Sultan Qaboos uh, has assiduously followed a policy uh, of um, peaceful coexistence with all of his neighbors, uh, and that has included Iran. Uh, and importantly, I think one thing that you hear uh, cited, at least uh, when you're there, uh, during the Iran-Iraq war, Oman did not take sides uh, between the two belligerents, unlike the other countries in the region. Um, so there were, were reasons to think that maybe Oman sort of had the wherewithal to help out. Perhaps, however, most importantly uh, is the nature of the Islam uh, in Oman. Oman, uh, uh, the majority uh, branch of Islam in Oman is Ibadism. Uh, Ibadism is a branch of Oman that dates back before the Sunni-Shia divide, uh, and as a result, Oman is kind of seen, at least by some, as not being part of the kind of Sunni-Shia distinction. And in that sense, potentially uh, enables it to play a more helpful role vis-a-vis uh, -vis a country like Iran, obviously, which is uh, a, a Shia majority. Um, country. So uh, what, what we did, obviously, is we tried to find ways to develop a certain amount of goodwill or rapport or confidence building uh, with Iran such that we could approach this issue strictly as a humanitarian issue. Uh, and those of you who know the outcome, we did eventually uh, get the hikers released uh, from Iran with the obvious support uh, of the Omanis. And that, I think, was an initial um, sort of element or, or a success that I think encouraged our country, and I'm possibly the Iranians, uh, to think that maybe there were other ways in which we could cooperate. I mean, at least we could find mutual interests, even, in, even as we continue to fundamentally disagree, um, you know, in terms of our approaches uh, to the region. 
Uh, and so that, uh, in my view, is at least one of the early elements that ultimately led to engagement, which, as you know, has now led uh, to an agreement, the, the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, so as a diplomat, of course, I applaud the success uh, of those who undertook that. I must say that during the time that I was in Oman, I was not terribly encouraged because one would learn of red lines and, and you know, you kind of thought, well, where is the compromise going to come? Uh, ultimately, obviously, the diplomats who, who succeeded uh, did a very good job of finding those middle grounds uh, that allowed diplomacy uh, to succeed. So uh, I'm very gratified as a, a career diplomat to see uh, such an outcome. Um, but to get back to the bigger story, um, the whole issue of engagement with Iran, I think, has led to a number of kind of misunderstandings. Certainly you hear frequently from our Gulf friends uh, their concerns, displeasure, however you want to might, might want to describe it, or perception uh, that somehow America is now allying with Iran or, or sort of going in with Iran, which I could not disagree with more. Um, uh, my own uh, perception is that we had a very specific vested interest on behalf of the entire global community in addressing the Iran issue, the, the potential of Iran to pursue a nuclear weapon. I don't think there was a higher international issue that anybody faced than trying to ensure that that did not happen. Uh, and so as we've seen, uh, what the president did is, is obviously he directed uh, his diplomats to segment out that issue approach that issue with the support of the international community. Again, I applaud our diplomats for their efforts to, to join with the P5 plus one. Uh, and, and when you consider it includes Russia and China, it was quite an accomplishment to really bring the kind of pressure necessary to come to what I think is an equitable agreement and an agreement which actually addresses that specific issue. Uh, obviously, there's a number of people who are disappointed or feel that somehow it should have been broadened to consider other issues. Uh, I don't think that would have been a formula for success in addressing this most critical issue of the Iran uh, nuclear file. But uh, to, to gain a little bit more context, I, I think during the course of the Obama administration, and certainly I saw this when I was uh, in Oman, there were a number of uh, developments that have changed or, or affected at least perceptions uh, and maybe to some extent realities vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the U.S. Uh, view of and approach with and cooperation uh, with the Gulf. And let me just uh, list a few. Uh, I was in Oman uh, during the Arab Spring, which I think was a, a watershed event. Um, and as, uh, as earlier speakers today have mentioned, um, during the Arab Spring, we did indicate that um, we were supportive of the kinds of changes that the people were seeking uh, in those countries. Now, of course, it didn't, the, the Arab Spring itself didn't work out as the people there, I think, had hoped, uh, but at least we wanted to be on, show that we were supportive of people seeking those changes. The aftermath of the Arab Spring, I think, has been disappointing and I think has colored our thinking about the region and, and in particular prospects for the region to move in the direction that we had been encouraged them to do. Uh, others mentioned this morning the pivot to Asia. Uh, that 
occurred also while I was there. Uh, again, I think that's a perceptual issue, not a real issue. Uh, but nonetheless, when, when you know, the president announces that we're sort of shifting or, or re-engaging re or strengthening our focus on Asia, other allies will look around and say, well, gee, that means that's less focus on us. I don't think that was the case. I don't think that was the intention. But nonetheless, I think there's a perceptual uh, element there. Um, and then I think the third has been discussed at length today, and that is the changed global energy market. And so I think that has also led to a perception as, US, as the U.S. gets closer to energy independence um, that there's less of a commitment uh, to this energy-producing region. Again, I don't think that is really the case, but I think we do have to deal with the perception of people in that region. So with those kinds of elements at play, I think we have seen a shift in attitudes and, and, and approaches between the U.S. and the GCC countries, and I look forward to discussing that with you during the Q&A. Next is uh, Dr. Abdelal Shahiji from Kuwait. Thank you. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Your Highness, distinguished guests, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, it's my pleasure to be back uh, for the fourth year in a row to participate in this uh, uh, important, in my opinion, conference uh, that uh, really shed the light on salient and timely topics and panels not to mention the outstanding speakers. Um, in the 24th annual uh, Arab-US Policy uh, Makers Conference uh, and the Arab League model that uh, John is really undergoing, in my opinion, uh, it's very relevant for us to understand each other and to bridge the gap and uh, tear down the walls of mistrust and confusion between our two people. Because of that, I salute you, Dr. John Anthony, for your effort and endeavor to be a positive, to give a positive spin and twist in a region that is really uh, much misunderstood and much uh, attacked and unfairly uh, is dealt with. Uh, my take uh, today is a mix between academia and policy paper. Unfortunately, I don't have time. I wrote, I wrote a paper about 10 pages, but I'm going to just uh, highlight uh, the important uh, points, in my opinion, between uh, in, uh, the strategic relationship between the GCC countries and United States. Of course, we don't have a monolithic uh, GCC policy, but at least we're trying and striving hard to have one. And the Saudi-led operation, decisive storm operation, is a point that we, we could all build upon and uh, have it come to, the, to fruition. Uh, the GCC-US relationship, in my opinion, is extremely strategic. This partnership needs an, uh, to have a roadmap and needs also to, to have a resetting. There is a need to reset the GCC-US relations because we are living in a tough neighborhood. There is instability. There is lack of balance of power. Toppling Saddam Hussein, I'm sorry, now I'm not uh, sticking to my, to my paper. Uh, 
toppling Saddam Hussein in 2003 created the most blunder the United States has committed and escalated the imbalance of power in the region in favor of Iran. What we're harvesting today is the result of that blunder that has set the region into a collision course with inter, uh, interacting uh, projects. You have the Iranian project, you have the Israeli project, you have even the Turkish project, and you don't have an Arab project. Now, what we have today is the beginning, the embryonic start of probably an Arab project led by the GCC countries that the Saudi-led operation Decisive Storm could be the inkling and the beginning of the formation of some kind of an, an Arab project that could be, now there are even ambitious talks that uh, this could be repeated in other places in the region, but let's f f first finish, uh, finish it in, uh, in Yemen. I don't know, but it seems every year I come to Washington, our region and your country here seems to be in disarray, more chaotic and dysfunctional. And allow me to be brutally honest here. The Arab state system seems to be imploding. Chaos and stability is the norm in many countries. Failed and fragile states with disintegration of the states and society in many Arab countries are pushing the region towards more chaos and instability. There is a widespread perception in the region and throughout the Middle East that the U.S. under President Obama is in retreat, and this is a fact, not imagination. And when push comes to shove, there are doubts that the Americans will be there to shoulder their responsibility and help their allies. Moreover, the U.S. seems to be preoccupied by its domestic agenda, evident by the chaos and dysfunctional bipartisan politics in Washington, making many U.S. allies wonder about the U.S. democracy and how it could project itself as the city by the hill to be emulated. Two years ago when I participated at the same conference here, the U.S. government just came out from an embarrassing government shutdown and a bitter debate over sequestration and cutting down the defense budget. This year things are more chaotic. The speaker resigned and the front runner also uh, opted to, to step down. And there is more uh, now, uh, more bipartisan argument in Washington. This reminds me of Richard Haas, the president of Council of Foreign Relations argument in his book, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, where he argues that the biggest threat to the U.S. comes not from abroad, but from within. What does that mean? President Obama seems to believe that too, where he said to Tom Friedman that the GCC most, uh, the threat to the GCC probably comes also from within, not from outside. We disagree with that. Two years ago when I arrived in Washington, there was no ISIS or Fahish or Daesh. And of course there was no war led by U.S. with 60 other nations to fight non-state actor. This is unprecedented event in history. 60 countries in the world fighting non-state actor that doesn't manufacture a bullet and does not have an air force. 
This is a first. Syria was bleeding then, and it is much worse today. Add to that the worsening sectarian tension in the Middle East. Iran has become even more emboldened and advancing its hegemonic project to undermine the security of the region and especially the GCC states where we are engaged in a Cold War mentality with Iran. And as I argue, we have now two Cold War going on at the same time in our region. GCC, Iran Cold War, projecting itself in the non-state actors and Iran boasting of controlling four Arab capitals and the fifth is on the way. And also a Cold War between United States and the West on one, uh, one hand and the Russia and the new, new coalition now that is forming under President Obama, watchful eyes, between Russia, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Hezbollah, and Iran proxies. So now we have come to this. We have argued from the very beginning that the nuclear deal with Iran will embolden Iran and will not calm it down to behave in a good neighborly manner. And we have been proven right. Since the, uh, the, since the, the, the nuclear deal was reached back in the middle of July, the litmus test that Iran has been really carrying out mischief and shenanigans that is undermining the security of the GCC states and even the Arab world. Yemen cut off its relationship with Iran for, for its intervention. Bahrain recalled its ambassador and kicked out the, the Iranian chargée d'affaires. This behavior by Iran has not been condemned by the United States. And the argument has been that Iran is only interested in the nuclear deal and not anything else, and it will not discuss its any, any other issue. And this is where we uh, diverge with the United States about in the, in, in the uh, Camp David summit and the visits by uh, Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State to our region, we have argued about two points. We welcome the Iranian deal, provided the deal will end Iranian nuclear program and will change Iranian behavior to practice good neighborly relationship. Now what we have, Iran is a threshold nuclear state. And I'm afraid that President Obama's legacy will not be that he clinched the Iranian nuclear deal, but he probably set off a nuclear race in the region to get GCC countries and others in the region the same ceiling that Iran has gotten in the deal. And by that, he's setting off a nuclear race for peaceful use. Is that what we want? So there is no position from United States, and, and this is a, a point that of contention between us and the, uh, the United States. Uh, I, uh, regarding Syria, regarding Iraq, things are really worsening by the day. You have now uh, Russia is involved, I, and I think the Russian involvement is a game changer in the region. Now it has complicated uh, any political solution to the Syrian crisis. You cannot now talk about two things. Cannot talk about departing assets from the scene without getting the approval of Moscow. And, you, and, and it's very funny that uh, Putin has now the upper hand in a region that has been a periphery of United States interests and the West. 
The Russians are back in the region after they departed since uh, the 70s after Sadat kicked them out. I just want to finish. I don't know how much time I have. I have a lot to say, but unfortunately, uh, the, the, the thing that really uh, struck me the other, on Sunday watching President Obama and his interview in 60 Minutes giving his own definition of leadership when uh, the uh, CBS correspondent was pushing Obama that uh, Putin is undermining your leadership, Obama was very belligerent and he argued that leadership is leading in climate change, reaching the nuclear deal with Iran, and fighting, uh, forming uh, and leading a 60-nation co coalition to fight against Daesh. Is this leadership? I mean, none of these issues have really materialized. After 14 months of bombing Daesh, Daesh still controls one half of Syria and one third of Iraq. And it's in no way being degraded, maybe degraded, slowed down, let alone defeated. I will move quickly, just one minute, please, to my conclusion. Two minutes. Two minutes, okay, that's good. <laughs> uh, Okay, the Russians taught the Americans during the Cold War to trust but verify as a President Reagan, when we used to be students at graduate school here, about the Russians, trust but verify. Iran has taught us it is hard to trust its word and reassurances. So far, it has been more vitriolic and provocative. Uh, the, the final point I would like to, to make is the conclusion and what, is the, uh, what, could, be, uh, what could be done. Uh, I believe that uh, the, uh, there, is, uh, there is really a need from both sides to level down and to, uh, to, to reset the relationship for the benefit of both sides. The, uh, the argument here is that the United States has a lot of leverage, it's not using it. GCC countries are now acting more independently, uh, evident by the Saudi-led Operation Decisive Storm for the first time. Non-U.S., a country that is not United States, is forming a large coalition of GCC countries and other Arab and Muslim countries from Morocco to, uh, to Pakistan to lead a fight on a very clear objective, as Prince Turkey stated uh, very, uh, very eloquently. Uh, there is mutual interest at stake. It has to be harvested. There has to be, in my opinion, a roadmap to reset the relationship, and hopefully when we meet here next year, we have much better news to report on rather than the dim and gloomy and, uh, and very uh, unstable region. And because we, we, we stand to lose a lot if we do not really cooperate and understand each other, and we stand to gain a lot. It's a, it has to be a two-way street and win-win situation rather than the other way around. Listen to the worries of your allies because there is really now a depressing scene in our region, and unfortunately it could really turn into a much worse scene if really we do not get our, our act together and act together to fend off and to really deal with this uh, looming crisis in the region in a very forceful and meaningful way. Thank you. Thank you to all the speakers. Dr. Anthony gave a broad outline of what the GCC is and is not. Just to summarize, uh, Mr. Al-Maina focused on the developments internally in Saudi Arabia. He noted that the GCC is not a monolith. 
Uh, Ambassador Schmerer focused is a Oman centric, focused on Oman some, and uh, Dr. Al Shaiji focused on strategic relations between the U.S. And, and GCC. He wants to see a reset of the relationship. And uh, now we will go to the questions and answers. We have uh, too many uh, at the table here, so we'll try and answer uh, a few of them. Uh, and we apologize in advance if we didn't get to your question. Uh, Dr. Anthony, first, how has the U.S. influenced the creation and the structure of the GCC? Mm -hmm. How can the U.S. aid in resolving GCC conflicts should they arise? Uh, the U.S. Uh, aided uh, indirectly uh, in the formation of the GCC. In the 1970s, uh, when I was a teacher at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and had Iranian diplomatic students and uh, GCC uh, diplomatic students, the U.S. was trying to have these six uh, countries on the western side of the Gulf uh, work more closely with Iran. Uh, the U.S. was wedded to a strategic long-term partnership with Iran and uh, thought that it would be the wisest thing if these uh, Arab countries uh, would do so. Uh, there was distrust of, of Iran uh, because of, on ethnic grounds, distrust on uh, sectarian uh, grounds, religious grounds, distrust in terms of what the, Iran's uh, hidden agenda, an open agenda, to be the paramount head in the Gulf. Those three things were obstacles that uh, needed to be overcome if that U.S. strategic objective was to succeed. Why did the U.S. try to do this? Because of Vietnam, really. On the way back from uh, a visit to Southeast Asia, uh, Nixon in Guam gave a speech in which he said, no more Vietnams. We will from, from henceforth have a strategic relationship with countries in various regions whose interests are identical to ours, similar to ours, complementary to ours, similar to ours, and uh, we needn't shed another drop of blood or fire another bullet. Iran said, uh, uh, we're your tool, uh, we're your agent, etc. All we need is uh, the money. Uh, no, excuse me, all we need is, uh, uh, are the tools. We have the money. And, uh, and indeed, we will pay you in your currency, not ours, and we will pay you in advance. And you can draw down on that. I remember being at a meeting of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York in the mid-70s when the Shah spoke like that and people were elbowing each other saying, my gosh, Santa Claus has come early this particular year. So we were quite um, biased uh, towards the, the Shah. And we had seen what Iran was doing to help Oman uh, with some 30,000 Iranian troops that went to uh, uh, Oman. Uh, 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 3,000 at a time, 90-day rotations over a three-year period, it added up to 30,000. It was an impressive aspect. People forget about that if they were ever aware of that. Um, I had meetings uh, with the Iranians and the uh, Arabs, and that those suspicions were foremost. Sultan Qaboos, though, came up and said, I'll... I'll explore this. I'll invite them all, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to see what uh, might be possible. So all eight uh, sent representatives to Muscat in 1976 in the fall, and what happened then was that uh, the six GCC countries, there was no GCC countries, were in effect told by Tehran and Baghdad to shut up. 
uh, Baghdad wanted to uh, lead the region as an Arab nationalist country. It could see that Egypt was going to be marginalized if Camp David came to fruition. And Iran wanted to uh, monopolize uh, the region. And uh, both of them outshouted each other, and the GCC countries could not get a word in edgewise. And the conclusion was, my goodness, while this has failed, we have learned a big lesson. We must never have either of those two vipers close to our breast or chest. And so Kuwait and Saudi Arabia were assigned the task to try to find ways that when the moment came, the six monarchies could get together. So yes, indeed, indirectly, the United States did have a role, and uh, the GCC from that point forward uh, began to think geopolitically, uh, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it, we're going to do it, we just need to figure out how to do it. Uh, Kuwait was the most free liberal progressive and offered to host many of the meetings, and it was by no accident that Abdullah Bashara became the first Secretary General of the GCC. It was no accident that Kuwait had had more experience than than any of the others in hosting Arab regional organizations. So yes, the U.S. did have a role. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Uh, the next question is addressed to Dr. Maina, and the question is, how do you evaluate the Gulf monarchy's prospects for survival in the next 30 years? I'm not an astrologer. So, uh... But anyway, having said that, I think it's important that one looks at the socio-economic structure of the Gulf states in the sense that, again, you know, I'm against those people who speak about khususi or specialization because this is uh, something totally an anathema in this modern world. Uh, I believe the Gulf states' survival in the next 30 years will depend on meritocracy, uh, meritocracy. it will depend on good governance, it will uh, depend on uh, social economic reforms, it will be, uh, depend on the induction of the young people and the growing population within the franc. I personally believe that the monarchy is the glue that holds the country together because in all the countries, the, the six Gulf countries, well, as I said before, they share some values, some social mores and all, but there has to be a central pivotal figure, not a benevolent dictator, not somebody um, with an iron fist, but somebody who is caring and who would know and also would help people. We are also stakeholders. When people talk about Gulf monarchy and they talk about the GCC, they talk about the sheikhs and the kings, but they forget us, the people down there. They have their own aspiration. And even the younger people now are different from those fogies of my age who, who you know, they think should be put aside. So in your own family, you have people who want to have their say. So I think it's important for authority, for the government and all, to understand that there are new players out, there is a new game going on, and it's important that we look into what, what their aspirations are and what they want. And if that is done, I think it will be easy sailing. But if it's not, there will be turmoil. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Schmirer, uh, explain in greater depth, depth uh, why Oman seems to be a GCC political and security outlier. And together with that, since we are short of time, do you believe the lack of succession mechanism in Oman uh, could alter the geopolitical status quo in the post-Kabus era? Uh, on, the f on the first question, uh, I think the, the attributes of Oman that I mentioned um, uh, in particular the fact that it's an Abadi majority country 
make it certainly somewhat different uh, than the other members of the GCC. Uh, it's not as wealthy as some of its, uh, of its other members. Uh, it also has a unique history. Of course, you may recall Oman used to be a, a regional empire in the, in the Indian literal. And as a result, um, Omanis uh, traditionally, historically, and, and currently uh, are very much outward looking, uh, very tolerant, very moderate. The Omani population is the most ethnically mixed Arab population given its history. Um, and so all of those factors, I think, play into a country uh, which is quite moderate um, and, and I think it's very welcoming. It's certainly a very nice place to be, as any of you who've been there would know. So I think there are a number of aspects of, of Oman uh, that make it unique and, and that make it a potentially helpful country for everybody because I think they can be helpful to the other Arab countries, specifically to their GCC partners, uh, in trying to sort of de-conflict some of the tensions in the region, whether it's with Iraq, whether it's with, uh, with Iran, with Iraq, uh, or otherwise. Um, they certainly have been a very good partner for us and the West uh, in terms of our interests in the region. Their strategic location is, of course, uh, extremely valuable to us, uh, to the West, and, and to the region. Uh, the fact that Oman is stable uh, and that it provides uh, kind of security support for stability in the region, I think, has been very, very important. So we appreciate that. The other part, uh, in, in terms of succession, um, I'm very bullish on Oman because I think what His Majesty has done uh, is develop institutions um, that will ensure continuity, that will ensure that the Omani people continue to receive good government uh, and, and kind of the, the support of government. So, so the ministries and the other leaders uh, are all, and the ministers have been selected for, for their merits and, and are, are really uniformly very strong. So I think the, the succession issue uh, is obviously one that people speculate about and, and are concerned about. Uh, I'm less so because I do think that whatever occurs, I think the institutions that have been created will continue to, to support the country and ensure its stability. Thank you. Um, for Dr. Al Shaiji, outstanding the uh, synthesis, somebody says, um, of the problem. What does the U.S. now need to do? And together with that, let me ask uh, another question here. Uh, um, harsh U.S. critiques on GCC human rights impacting U.S. GCC relations. How should one assess? China as an attractive partner to the long term given their policy of non-interference? Thank you. Thank you for the questions. What could the U.S. do? I mean, the U.S. could do a lot. I mean, first of all, stops its contradictory approach to the region. Um, United States is saying it's fighting Daesh and it's soliciting the help and cooperation of Iran to fight Daesh, ISIS in Iraq. And if you read the fourth secret letter that was sent by President Obama to Al-Murshid, the Iranian supreme leader back in uh, October 2014, he urged him to reach a nuclear deal and then he said, according to the Wall Street Journal, we could cooperate in fighting extremism and terrorism, i.e. Daesh. So how could the United States, that President Obama's uh, State Department, 
on its annual report on patterns of international terrorism for the last dec three decades label Iran as the number one country sponsor of terrorism in the world, how could he ask Iran to help in fighting ISIS or ISIL or IS or Daesh that was created because of the environment and the blunders by the United States by ostracizing the Sunnis and allowing al-Maliki to do it without even push him or nudge him even to stop his sectarian policy and keeping Assad in his place, ostracizing and killing the Sunnis. So Daesh has the answer. So how could you ask the wolf to protect the chicken coop? This is exactly what Obama is doing. And that really sends chills in, in, in our spine. And one of the, according to one of the officials I talked to in the GCC, the reason that the, when, when the GCC joined the fight against Daesh back in August 2014 was Iran should not be on board. And now Obama is telling Iran, let's do it. The other contradiction is that the United States is fighting Daesh in Iraq and allowing Qasem Soleimani. You know who's Qasem Soleimani? The most dangerous and the most powerful man in the Middle East. And he is on the United States list of international terrorists. And they see him in Iraq and they do nothing about him. With his revolutionary guard that is labeled, Quds Brigade is labeled as a terrorist organization. Allowing the Houthis, United States, other contradiction, I could go on and on and on about the contradiction. Stop the contradiction that the United States is making. United States argues that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is headquartered in Yemen, is the most dangerous branch of Al-Qaeda in the world. Fine. What did the United States do? Packed up and left. And who's protecting the U.S. Embassy in Sana'a? The Houthis, Ansarullah, protecting it. And they left Al-Anad Air Base that they used to carry out from it in the south of Yemen the special ops against Al-Qaeda in the southern part of Yemen. United States, at the last point, the United States argue that Bashar al-Assad has to go. Fine. His days are numbered. Fine. He lost legitimacy, has no future. No role in this serious future. What, are the United, what is the United States willing to do? To translate that from rhetoric to a working plan. Is the United States willing to have an off-fly zone, as the Turks and the GCC countries are, have been arguing? Even some yesterday I heard in the, uh, and, and the, the, some of the Republicans and some of the Democratic candidates arguing for an off-fly zone and, no, uh, and, and, and safe zone in order to have all these refugees. I mean, it's very easy to stop the, 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 the largest refugee crisis in the world since World War II. Take off Assad. If you don't want to do that, create no-fly zone, no-fly zone, no-drive zone, safe zone, so all these refugees, instead of going to Turkey and to Europe and test the value of the West and the hypocrisy sometimes, let them stay in Syria. It's very simple. But the United States is so timid and not willing to do it because it doesn't want to upset the status quo and to have 
who will be if if we if we I mean the argument here is so 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 sarcastic. If we take out Assad, what what's the alternative? How come you didn't say that when you took out Saddam Hussein and Al Qaddafi? Nobody asked what's the alternative. Now it's much harder. The more you wait and the more you procrastinate and the more you have inaction, the harder it is it will be to deal with this quagmire that is Syria. And it's sucking the whole region into abyss, instability, and quagmire, unfortunately, because of the inaction of this administration and the international community. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Dr. I'm sorry. In the interest of time again, I will ask Dr. Anthony to answer. I've already given him the questions, and he needs to... Uh, he wants, he should address how would the creation of GCC standing army affect its ability to respond to regional conflicts and some of the other questions. Bundle them up, Dr. Anthony, and give some answers. Sure. I'll try to answer the, the last one uh, uh, last. Um, we were all asked uh, to try to come up with a policy recommendation so that policymakers uh, might think, hmm, is that a good one or not? Can we do it? Is it feasible? Uh, how much would it cost? Uh, what would be the implications if we wait? Uh, why do we need to do that? Where will we be if we do it? Where will we be if we don't do it? Or even sometimes whether it needs to be done, but if it's not broken, we'll try to fix it. My policy recommendation is for uh, the establishment of a GCC-US liaison office in the nation's capital. There is not one. Uh, I would argue there needs to be one. Uh, all right. Uh, welcome to the comment. And uh, the reason for it is, is, is obvious. We have the four defense cooperation agreements. We don't have one with Saudi Arabia, but what we do have with Saudi Arabia, de facto, is greater than all the uh, other agreements combined. So let's don't confuse form with uh, function there. Uh, and with Oman, I've already mentioned the access to facilities agreement. We had the summit in this past May between the president and the GCC leaders. There's been no such American uh, presidential summit ever with uh, the six heads of state of any sub-regional uh, entity that I'm aware of in the world uh, there. So uh, the uh, efforts to uh, build on this relationship, to protect on it, the multifaceted diversity of the relationships, of the interests, of the needs, of the concerns, and of the goals uh, necessitate that we have an office in the same time zone. Uh, of course the GCC is in uh, Riyadh. Of course the U.S. Embassy is just five minutes drive uh, away, maybe three minutes drive when there's no traffic as such there. But, but, but that's insufficient. Uh, there needs to be one in both places here. Uh, just as there is uh, one in the EU. So that's my policy uh, recommendation. Point two, uh, Abdullah is quite correct uh, about Iran, and the list is very long about the grounds for mistrust and uh, suspicion. If you don't have trust, what can you do between two people there? Trust is everything, is it not? In terms of sensitive issues, at least in terms of going forward, sharing sensitive inf information and uh, taking risks, uh, uh, which leaders are, are, are enjoined to do. Now, uh, perceive it this way if you're empathetic, uh, that when these talks began, GCC representatives asked the United States, can't we be in these meetings? 
if, if not as direct participants, then listener participants, as auditors at least, because we have interest. Look, if Russia was going to have a strategic relationship with Canada or Mexico or China with Canada or Mexico and the United States was to be excluded from these meetings, my gosh, we would go through the roof. Well, we would uh, have an outrage, and legitimately so. Uh, but when the GCC countries asked this of us, and we asked Tehran, would that be all right? And Tehran said we would prefer not. Our response was a resounding, okay. Uh, and so this uh, seemed to be naive, dangerous, reckless, and irresponsible there. The analogy would be that if uh, Iran is an adversary on the terrorism list, that Iran had a leader saying that we control the capitals of Pennsylvania, <laughs> of Ohio, and uh, Florida, and uh, Texas, and uh, we're going to have uh, another one in Colorado there. I mean, just imagine at this. This is the reverse of it there. Look how Americans go ape, blank, 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 expletive, deletive, uh, when people even talk about Sharia uh, possibly influencing the constitutions of some of our states there. As to the question put to Khaled Al-Maina, his remark was spot on there. And it has relevance to when the GCC was founded. Iraq wanted to be a member. Yemen wanted to be a member. So did Jordan, etc. You read the GCC's charter carefully. It talks about common history, common language, common culture, common needs, common concerns, common interests, etc. And similarity in forms of government. Now, Iraq's government came to power. Both of them, all of them, since 58 by overthrowing precisely the kinds of governmental uh, structures and political systems as the six GCC countries. Same thing in Yemen there. Uh, you say, well, Jordan's a monarchy, but Jordan's not a, a Gulf country. You'd have to change the charter profoundly there. And Jordan is a neighbor of Israel, and there are many in Israel that want to have Jordan be the state of Palestine. GCC countries uh, have no strategic or other interest in being drawn into that. So this is another additional reason why those three countries that wanted to be members are not members. Thank you. Can I uh, comment on the sure. liaison office? Uh, what you stated, uh, John, is very, uh, very good. I mean, I, uh, this is my idea four years ago. I suggested it to some GCC officials in Kuwait and Riyadh and even to some ambassadors here. Why don't we as GCC, because we have so much uh, in common and we have uh, interest in the United States, why don't we have a liaison office as in the EU, uh, European Union, we have uh, a delegation there and happens to be a Kuwaiti lady, Amal al-Hamad, who is heading the GCC uh, bureau in uh, Brussels, which, uh, which, which is doing a great job. Why don't we have it in the United States? And guess what was the answer? The State Department won't give them diplomatic immunity. So they have to, to act from within GCC embassies, or those who are liaisoning with the U.S. Congress and with the State Department, with, uh, if, if, if there will be a, a liaison office, it won't be a separate entity under the GCC flag and umbrella. So let's talk to the State Department and to, to the White House if they are really interested in upgrading and moving the relationship forward at the strategic level 
and Camp David was a good start in my opinion and it, according to the to, uh, to, to Camp David summit it has uh, it will be done on an annual basis in other GCC capitals thank you Dr. Uh, then let's have it I, I mean I, I'm for it uh, by, by all means, but the problem is here in the United States. There is interest in the GCC countries, but the Americans are not giving the, uh, the diplomatic immunity that is supposed mm. I have something Thank about you. Iran. Th but, th uh, we'll come I'll, back to I'll, that. I'll Thank you, Dr. al for that clarification. The next question is for Dr. Mr. Al-Maina. And uh, how have you been able to cope with the Saudi censorship on news and still done a good job at journalism uh, with Arab News and Saudi Gazette? Together with that, let me just ask uh, also what's been asked here. Uh, how can the religious Saudi establishment reform and moderate? And together with that, um, it uh, asks a question about somebody's asking a question about the educational system, transforming education system from rote learning and memorization to, crit to critical thinking and innovation. So, first one, uh, how would you find? Uh, uh, I mean, do you do your job as editor of both the papers? I think over the years they. Uh, things changed. When I took over, I remember the first major incident was in 1990 after eight years in the news and somebody asked how do you dis um, describe your job as an editor in, in Saudi Arabia. This was in 1990 when there were about half a million American troops on the ground and I said uh, it's like a man trying to dance the lambada without shaking his hips. So that was at that time. But over that period uh, there have been great changes in the media, and I think uh, the year 2000, King Abdullah's ascension uh, to the throne, so different, and also the people changed, and also you had technology come in, so there was no uh, guy coming and sitting from the censor board, which never was. So you have new playing fields, you have new technology, and it helped a lot. Uh, by and large, I think I personally am satisfied with the, with the progress of the media in that. But remember, we are a very private uh, uh, society, so what you have here as news will not make it, not because they don't want to put it, but because they think it's demeaning for us to expose someone or to talk about somebody. Uh, reform, uh, whether the, uh, uh, the religious establishment. First of all, I'd like to say this. The word religious establishment or ulama or is because in Islam there is no clergy, la rahbaniya fil Islam. There's absolutely, these are self-appointed people. Unfortunately, over the past few years, uh, a couple of hundred years, Muslim rulers brought these people. So like in the old days, they would give edicts in their favor, like... Uh, when Henry VI wanted to have a second wife and all, and then he changed and also This is exactly what happened to the Muslim world in that sense that these are self-appointed clergy paid by the government. Now, of course, they stuck. There was metamorphosis and they increased in numbers. Reform, I think the best thing to do is for the government to take them head on. You know, there's only uh, one Gary Cooper in town. Uh, you, you can't have two sheriffs. They've got to get out and, and, and really come and put them in their place because in this modern age and in society, you cannot have somebody come in and give in and have edicts or directives or tell them what to do. It's a modern society. I'm a Muslim. I know what my rights and duties are. I know how to behave. So I don't need somebody who's sitting and screaming in the pulpit and finger-pointing at me to do this and that. 
So I, I think the governments have to realize in the Arab world and in the Gulf states to put them in their place. That is, as far as the educational system is concerned, I think the inclusion of private investors in education has helped a lot because the new colleges and universities that are there teach English, IT and all and the selection process is very rigid. It's very difficult to get in. So uh, I, I am optimistic in that uh, sense. Also, the, as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned and some of the other GCC, where they sent about 120 to 140,000 students to the United States. So this also has helped because it makes people exchange cultures and learn. So I'm, on that is, I'm more optimistic on the reforms for the religious establishment. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Ambassador Schmerer. Uh, a question. How did Oman's recent choice not to participate in Saudi-led airstrikes in Yemen affect the GCC efficacy? Uh, the, another question. How will or should the GCC react to the increasing Syrian refugee crisis? Thank you. Um, in, in terms of Oman and, and involvement in the coalition uh, in Yemen, it's not unusual that this has been kind of the pattern in the past. Um, they really don't prefer to get involved in military activities. They very much, as I mentioned, they have this, this policy of peaceful coexistence, uh, and so they will look for ways to, to make other kinds of contributions. They make a lot of economic contributions to Yemen. They've done a lot uh, in terms of diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis Yemen, and potentially they could still play a role uh, in the current conflict, again, as I mentioned earlier, because of their potential for for having some ability to engage with Iran and try to help the parties come to some kind of a, of a resolution. So I think their uh, input uh, will be much more valuable in those areas, and I think by staying out of the military side of it, that potentially strengthens their ability to contribute in other areas, and, and they might be the only country that can play that uh, kind of unique role. Uh, in terms of uh, Syria, uh, again, I think uh, they would like to, to, I mean, I don't think they want to get involved, don't get me wrong, but to the extent that their influence might play a role, I think they could also uh, potentially um, help the parties, help, help the, the conflict and those involved in the conflict come to some kind of a, of a political solution. As you know, has been discussed at length today, uh, the U.S. still considers um, the, the, the most uh, promising uh, prospective outcome to be a political transition, a political solution. There's no obvious way that that's going to happen in the short term, but I think if one is looking at ways to get to that, uh, a potential uh, involvement by a country like Oman, which might again be able to help the parties look at ways that they might um, look to a political transition. Uh, I mean, I've told Omani friends you should offer Bashar al-Assad asylum in your country. He'd love to live there, I'm sure. Um, and so I don't know if something as practical as that uh, might play a role. But again, using their goodwill and their potential ability to talk to both sides, they might be able to play a role in defusing that from a political standpoint. Um, there is a question for the entire panel, but I think this, this subject will be discussed in more detail tomorrow, but let me just throw out the 
short question. How does industry engage the GCC as an entity? How does the GCC procure capabilities and services as an entity? If you care to answer, that's fine. If not, I think tomorrow, this is the subject of much of tomorrow or some. Uh, so far, it does not uh, procure as an entity, though people would like to see it do so. It's nice to have one customer rather than six separate ones for administrative, bureaucratic, functional, uh, operational, logistical maintenance reasons. Uh, once only, to my knowledge, did the GCC procure collectively, and this was in the beginning when uh, they worked on a, a procurement of Pakistani rice in order to buy in bulk in order for the price to be uh, less, uh, given that they were buying in bulk for the sick. But I'm not aware of any other uh, collective purchase. Maybe Abdullah is. Um, I'll just move on and ask uh, Dr. Al-Shaiji a question. How should the U.S. support cooperation between the GCC and other Arab nations in the Yemen conflict? And also, if you care to uh, provide additional information on what Ambassador Shmir said on Omar. I mean, regarding Yemen, it is, uh, it is uh, in my opinion, the Operation Decisive Storm has been uh, an eye-opener and a game-changer and for the first time it has shown the GCC countries, as have been arguing for the last four or five years, is the de facto leader of the Arab order. I mean, if you look at the traditional Arab, large Arab, uh, dominant Arab states in Al-Mashriq, Fil-Mashriq uh, Al-Arabi, uh, traditionally they have been Egypt, uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. These four countries are the anchors of the Mashriq uh, in, the, in the Arab world. But what, what's the story now with Egypt? It's preoccupied with its domestic strife, instability, economic uh, issues. Uh, Iraq uh, is in shambles. Syria has uh, ceased to be a state. So that leaves the burden on the GCC countries, and the largest of the GCC countries forming probably 80% of almost everything is Saudi Arabia. And finally, Saudi Arabia decided with other GCC countries, uh, junior partners of Saudi Arabia, to stand up and say enough is enough. We're not going to be turning the other cheek. We're not going to be dependent on the United States and the West forever. We're going to do things on our own to defend our national interest and to deal a major blow to the arc that Iran is bragging about and boasting about of occupying four Arab states through their proxies. and. They have the audacity even for the uh, advisor of President Rouhani to state clearly that Iran has, has now become an uh, imperial power and its capital is Baghdad. And through all of this, with all the Iranian shenanigans and mischief, I haven't heard a word of condemnation from the State Department or the White House. And this is really irking the GCC countries and people, to the level that I received a couple of days ago a message on my WhatsApp. I was shocked. I mean, I don't know if it's real or not, that the United States, after the Russians got involved in Syria, has pulled out its only aircraft carrier from the Gulf and has pulled out its Patriot missiles from the borders of Syria, Turkey-Syria borders. I don't know if that's true. If somebody in the military could, could uh, shed light on this, I really appreciate Somebody asked me, what do you make of that? Is the United States surrendering more to the Russians? I mean, is this true? 
If this is true, this is really unbelievable. Uh, so Yemen is really a, a testing ground for the GCC countries. We decided to stop the Iranian project on its track. Part of it is restoring the legitimate government of uh, Abd Rabbo Mansour Hadi, who was democratically elected in Yemen. The other part is to hit Iran project in its head. And now Iran is really uh, resorting to mischief in other places. But this is something that is really, if, 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 if it will succeed hopefully in Yemen, it could lend itself to, to, to send message to Iran and its proxies, and now the Russians are on board, that we're not going to sit idle and do nothing and wait for others to come to our rescue. We're going to do the job on our own. Thank you, Dr. Al-Shaiji. Um, an important question uh, for Dr. Anthony. How are the ties between the U.S. and Israel impacting relations between the U.S. and the GCC? Uh, the ties between the United States and Israel have um, impacted the uh, relationship between the United States and the GCC a lot. And, it, and they've had an impact on what the GCC could be, might be, would like to be, but has not yet been able to be, in part because of the Israeli component uh, in the overall uh, calculus there. And I'll, I'll say what others perhaps are not willing to say. Uh, in the first GCC year, 1981, uh, it was founded in Abu Dhabi in May, but they agreed to have a second uh, summit in November uh, that year. That's because at the end of that first summit, uh, Sultan Qaboos said that, look, we can talk about economic cooperation, integration, harmonization, etc., uh, for years here. And of course, we would benefit from that. Uh, but it will all amount to nothing if we do not build a wall of protection and defense around all that we have achieved since we have become uh, independents there. And we have to link the two, uh, that we have to be able to pay for the defense. Therefore, we have to link our economies in a cooperative way uh, to the extent that's possible without violating sovereignty or vested interest in status quo and amongst others in our, our, our countries there. But we have to do what uh, we can. So Saudi Arabia and Oman worked on this uh, to the extent that they could. Uh, both of them were, were, were in agreement uh, on this. But in November, I remember being at that summit, and the Israelis came in through Saudi Arabia's air, airspace, and they flew over to book, I mean, the sound barrier, right while the summit was being held, cracked there and made everybody jolt, etc., because of the, the noise that it made. And then the Israeli planes dropped their empty fuel tanks on the runway in Tobuk, in essence, to say, you guys can talk about defense all you want, but we're the big boys and girls in the neighborhood. We're the dominant ones there, and you, you, you better think twice before you think uh, you can have a separate independent uh, defense posture of, of, of any uh, relevance there. Um, beyond that uh, have been the Israeli lobbies' uh, influence with Congress to uh, prohibit or make it very difficult for some of the GCC countries to purchase American advanced armaments. Uh, it was almost as though in getting some of the F-15 planes, uh, Saudi Arabia would have to agree not to be able to turn left uh, there when they took off from the airfields air there because that would be in the direction of Israel there. Uh, these kinds of, uh, of, of humiliating um, aspects were linked to them. There's also thirdly, uh, Israel was the responsible partner for Saudi Arabia purchasing the tornado. 
uh, because the Saudi Arabians wanted uh, something from the United States, even though the United States had strings on it. The British did not. The British tornado was far more lethal than anything the U.S. was willing to sell uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, but uh, the Israeli lobby ensured that that would not come to pass. We lost uh, $70 billion from that particular contract alone that would have otherwise gone to American uh, companies. And then lastly, with regard to the two intifadas, both the first one in December of 1987 and the second one end of September uh, to year 2000. Uh, what these did in the media, broadcasting into the homes of all the GCC countries uh, that the United States was doing uh, uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, to uh, uh, lessen, uh, to call for an abatement of the way that the Israelis were treating the Palestinians in the occupied territories. And that was nothing then uh, to what happened a uh, year before last uh, in Gaza, etc. So yes, this has uh, poisoned the well, poisoned the reservoir, what had been uh, goodwill towards the United States. America had no enemies in the region prior to the establishment of Israel. Let's be frank about that. America had no Arab adversaries either. Indeed, America had no critics. Uh, but since then, uh, because of the U.S. Uh, blind support, perceived blind support for Israel, this has harmed the trust uh, relationship here. And the United States' use of the veto in the U.N. Security Council, being the Olympic champions of use of the veto and the abortion of the uh, democratic process within the world's highest political body. Uh, uh, let's be frank about this. Uh, this has hardly been a sterling example of uh, practicing what one preaches and meaning what one says and saying what one means. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. We're down. Well done. Uh, we're down to one or two more questions. Uh, Ambassador Schmerer, how can the U.S. facilitate cooperation between the GCC in terms of their funding of rebel groups in Syria, some of which have different objectives and uh, enemies? Uh, obviously, that has been a, a challenge because, uh, first of all, obviously it's been difficult to find viable, um, moderate uh, opposition groups. Um, and so we've done our best to try to, to support that element, uh, but that has obviously not uh, panned out very well. Obviously, we, we continue to be concerned with any support for what we still consider to be extremist groups, uh, and obviously ISIS is the worst of all, but there are others, Nusra and others, uh, who we think also uh, represent extremist ideologies, and we would not want to see supported. But uh, I think what we've seen, I think we have to admit that uh, our Arab uh, friends have, have, for practical, pragmatic reasons, um, looked to groups that we don't want to support to support uh, because they're the, the only viable alternative. Um, and so I think we're just going to have to both agree to live with that. We would not be supporting those groups, but I think we would not be taking direct efforts to prevent others from supporting them. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Arma'ina. Quickly, how, if at all, given the fact that Qatar backs Libya down, down while Saudi Arabia and the UAE support the international recognized Tobruk government, can the GCC secretariat and or one or more GCC countries coordinate GCC action in Libya to help settle the political security situations in that country? 
Well, the problem is that uh, Arab relations, inter-Arab relations are based on permanent relations, personal relations in the sense that if one Arab leader is friendly to the other, then it's all hunky-dory. But if any mishap occurs between the two, then the countries, you know, they're all at loggerheads. It happened uh, so many times between Saudi Arabia and Egypt. I mean, you could, there was no sustained policy, there was no consistency from both sides. That is one. Now, in the terms of whether the GCC, even the GCC is at loggerhead with itself. I remember when we had the problem between Qatar and the UAE and, and uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, these three, you could see the media, there's a frenzy. I mean, as if this was Iran. I mean, these things are going on. So unless we resolve and solve our own problems to have a strategy, think tanks, and look at the largest interests of the GCC and the Arab countries and come out openly, the Secretary General of the, the GCC would just then be a messenger boy going from place to place and not getting any answer. Thank you. Uh, if any of the panelists have a burning last line to say, this is the time, after which we'll close. Dr. Anthony, Dr. Abdullah, any points to make very quickly? Uh, well, thank you very much. I enjoyed the, the panel, I enjoyed the questions, and I hope the audience uh, also enjoyed the, the discussions here. i just like to underscore the need for uh, the relationship between the two strategic partners to develop into a real partnership, beyond rhetoric, beyond the blunders, beyond uh, misunderstanding each other. We have a lot in common. We could benefit a lot if we work together, if we understand each other better. And what John Duke is doing is a great job. I salute him uh, once again. And I uh, really am happy to be uh, back again and again here to help in bridging uh, this gap because it's important for us to be on the same page, not to have divergent views, especially in a region that is on fire. We need more more firemen and less trouble in that region. And by the way, we're on overtime, Dr. Al-Shaidi, sorry. <laughs> congratulate everybody and uh, for the beginning of Sana uh, al-Hijriya. Today is the first day of Hijri, year kal'am and tubkhir. Thank you. Any comments on this side? Yeah, just a footnote to what Dr. Shaidi said on the withdrawal of the aircraft carrier from Bahrain and the missiles. I think it was more for budgetary reasons than anything else. Yeah. Thank you. Ambassador Shmir. Uh, one thing, I was struck, uh, and I would just uh, second uh, Khaled's comment about the monarchies. I certainly hope we will continue <coughs> excuse me, to see the monarchies in the Gulf 40 and 50 years from now because they do provide the stability. Mm -hmm. They are all evolving. And so uh, the important point is their evolution, not their abolition. And so I think as we've seen the kinds of progress that have been made, I look at Oman, they have elected officials, they have a majlis, they have a cabinet with people who've been elected by the people. So they've all been evolving, and I think that's a very important element of stability while the people do gain a greater voice through their evolution. So I would certainly agree with you completely that I think those represent strong institutions that I would certainly like to see continue. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, Dr. Anthony, final word, and then we'll close. Uh, three unrelated uh, uh, comments here. Uh, the last one on uh, the fact that uh, Prince Turkey um, made a clarion call for the um, 
a peace process between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, no one has mentioned that on uh, March 31st, 2002, all 22 Arab countries agreed to not only re-recognize Israel, uh, but to establish normal relationships uh, with Israel's. And this was crafted in such a way as to meet every single obstacle or issue that Israel had raised all these years uh, as a reason for not uh, reaching out and having a peace agreement with the Palestinians there. It's been 13 years and the GCC countries and all the other 20, uh, uh, 16 Arab League countries have been waiting for a, a yes answer. The Israelis' response has been, well, this is not really a serious uh, offer for peace agreement, even though they've offered us everything we've ever asked for. Um, this ought to be just the beginning of a conversation. And we ought to break this down and negotiate each thing. Water first, then borders, then refugees, then sovereignty, and whether the Palestinians can have an army, if they can ever have a submarine, if they can ever have an aircraft carrier, if they can ever have uh, relations with Iraq or Syria, uh, or any other, uh, heaven forbid, Iran, an Iranian embassy right next door, etc. And so each one of these would take about five years to negotiate. That's five pieces right there. That would be a quarter of a century uh, just to negotiate these. So uh, uh, the polite diplomatic word would be that this risk response uh, has the initials of B and S. And this does not stand for Boy Scouts or Blind Blonde Sisters, okay? Uh, so there's that aspect of it. Uh, now, at the reception this evening, is a real treat. Uh, for the last two years, the Kuwait America Foundation uh, at its gala here has had uh, Dendil Hoyt uh, sing. She's an American blues singer. She started studying classical music when she was nine years old, the violin, the oboe, piano. She's a classical pianist. Uh, she writes music. I don't know how old she is, but somewhere between maybe 25 and 35. Uh, she scored big on the voice uh, season uh, television. Some of you may have, have seen that. Uh, she was chosen uh, Artist of the Year in 2014. Uh, you don't want to miss this. Uh, she will knock your socks off. Uh, she'll sing for about uh, half an hour, seven songs there, then she'll leave, but uh, uh, I don't think you'll be the same uh, afterwards after you've heard this woman there. Uh, and last is uh, Linda Jacobs has just come out with a book called Strangers in the West, which in essence is a story of uh, uh, Arab Americans as they, they, they came to the West and uh, New York City in particular for 20 years. Uh, as the book is for sale here and she's here and I believe she may be willing to sign, sign copies there. And there's Paul Finley's books here too. And um, I haven't asked him but I believe he would be willing to sign any books uh, also. And we're grateful for the American uh, Educational Trust and Delinda Hanley and her team. They do an extraordinary job, and they have the 